Good too. Look at the sunshine filtering through that window. Wow. I'm sitting in my car. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, where we do these things in our car, apparently. I've done two like this this week. <laughs> That's amazing. Gosh, it's like you're surrounded by angels, Winnie. That's exactly <laughs> how it feels here. <laughs> That's wonderful. You mean, and I was speaking to our producer, Rosie, earlier, and, and she is also um, on a bit of a pilgrimage. And so, uh, so she's not in her usual spot. And so um, I'm the only one that's sort of sat in a conventional seat in a conventional place. So, Winnie, you you are in this, um, this new and wonderful uh, part of the American story. Is it being good to you? Are you finding yourself there? This is a beautiful city. I can't wait for you and Rosie to come visit. Um, it's It has the largest, I think, tree canopy in North America or something like that. Basically, there's a lot of trees and a lot of people that love their trees and just a remarkably diverse and wonderful and creative city um, at a wonderful church, St. Luke's in Atlanta, which you can find online. Um, it's just fantastic. Um, I'm really happy. How are you? That's... How's Manchester? Yeah, Manchester's all right. We have trees here as well. Um, and so, you know, which is, uh, yes, we do. Yes, and we have um, lots of participation. Participation? Participation, not participation. Rain, um, to keep the trees lovely and green. Uh, so <laughs> that's what we have over where we are. So, uh, yes. Participation, um, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have sprinklers. When you have participation, I have sprinklers. Yeah. <laughs> that's great, thank you. Hey, so today, um, We've got another conversation lined up for um, for Gert Race, uh, G Race, and I'm so excited. I'd love to hear something about your friend that you're going to introduce me today. Yeah, so Anderson might be someone known um, to you as well. Um, oh, God, I've let him in. I didn't mean to. Is he here? Is he, uh, yeah, I, he's going to come on. I'm going to yes. tell him to wait. Okay. Anderson, I've, I've made a big mistake. I've let you in too early. So do not look at these people until I say you can come in. All right? And don't listen. Turn don't listen. Don't feel excited. Don't listen. Just don't listen. All right? Right, that's great. All right. Hey, can I tell you about my friend Anderson? Yeah, that'd be amazing. No, I'd love to hear about him. Loosely applied. I don't know if it would be fair to say, but on Facebook, he's my friend. Um, <laughs> Um, I met him at Greenbelt. Um, he was leading a workshop on Dalit theology at Greenbelt and invited me to come and just seemed delightful and um, had really interesting connections in South India, which of course is always interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, and then I looked him up after after he invited me and um, he's a significant scholar in your country. I, live, I think he lives down the road from you somewhere. Um, oh my goodness. And is, is kind of a player in your church um, and a, just a great thinker and is, his spouse is also um, uh, a priest, I believe, in the Church of England, and he's raising two beautiful girls, and he um, shares that in a wonderful way on social media, just what it means to be a dad, which is, I know, that something he has in common with you. Um, I think you're going to really like each other. I, I can't believe you don't know each other. That's amazing. So you're all the way over in Atlanta, and he's down the road, and you're introducing us. Gosh, how about that? I, I, I feel like I'm one of those people that says, hey, I know a guy in England. Do you know him? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's brilliant. Well, I look forward to getting to know him. Let's meet him. Anderson, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 
He's just had to listen to us uh, introduce him, and if everything we got wrong, he heard. Usually, people don't get to hear what we got wrong. <laughs> there it is, Anderson. It's such a pleasure to see you and to be with you. Welcome to our podcast. And one of the things that we love to do with our guests is ask them a question. It's a simple question, but often it leads to some interesting directions. And that question is, what is home to you? Um, home. I, I think that's a very, very difficult question because growing up in India, people always ask you where you're from um, and they always put you in a particular box. Uh, the, ne- the moment you tell the village name or the house name, they know exactly who you are, where you are. And so ever since uh, when I was little, I-, I always wanted to confuse people. So I never tell them the right home. And when people ask me, where is my home? I will always give them some distracting information. And uh, even when you know I've been living in England, People ask me, where is home? And they said, oh, I'm from Scotland. And you should see the excitement in people's eyes. No, 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 where exactly you're from? Uh, The thing is, so for me, home is where I belong. Home is where I feel accepted and comfortable. So I think I, I resist the idea of having one home. I try and be present in different places where I feel that I'm embraced, accepted uh, as an equal. You actually have kind of a follow-up to that, Anderson. I've wondered about this. I, I'm an Indian as well. And when people ask you as an Indian um, or from your state, right, um, uh, where is your house? What's your house name? They're not necessarily asking an innocent question, right? Um, and so I, I've been thinking about this. There's almost no way to answer that question, regardless of who we are, without um, uh playing into a system most, you know, most of us would want to reject. So does then, do we lose the category or how do you, how do you think about it? Because, because I'd say as an immigrant, what that cat, what that often means is you're, what we're telling you is you're, what I'm being told is I'm not from here. Right. So there's that defensiveness around where's my home, but I wonder as Indians, how we're supposed to even, you know, how, how do you think about that? It, it is uh, quite challenging Winnie, um, especially when you're, bringing up two little girls uh, who are mixed race, you want to give them a sense of home um, and you want to kind of share all the fun that you had, you know, uh, kind of uh, running around uh, and chasing animals and things like that and give them a sense of this this world that was very much part of my own life. And uh, similarly, my wife, who is kind of German, Canadian, grew up in the Rockies, wants to give that sense of home. So it's it's about giving them that sense that you can call more than one place your home, but at the same time, you also need to create a sense of belonging wherever you are. And as you're speaking about children, I'm curious, um, Anderson, and you as well, Winnie, if I were to meet you as 10-year-olds, what sort of things would you have been doing? What kind of child would I have encountered and where might, ha- might, where might I have found you? Anderson first. <laughs> well, I, the, my favourite memories when I was 10 years old was chasing monkeys on a hill station. Uh, where, and then, you know, I, I remember a group of boys 
literally going up a mountain uh, you know a little hill full of uh, you know thorns and everything so we went in search of mangoes this particular type of mangoes that grows in the forest uh, but once you go in there you, you didn't realize that there were quite a, a ferocious family of monkeys sitting on the tree and all i remember <laughs> all i remember was being chased by this family of monkeys and i came home with bruises all over my face and my and my mom said you know you're never going out again because it's we didn't realize how dangerous so uh, that's that's something that a 10 year old anderson would have been doing <laughs> yeah wow my goodness well it's good preparation for a ministry later on <laughs> i would Winnie, how about you? <laughs> and say, Anderson, your fa- your father was a pastor, right? So you were mo- you moved yeah. around a lot, yeah. Quite a well, lot. Well, you you yeah. basically just you described the childhood. I I dreamed people were having in India that I wasn't getting to have, like monkeys and a mango. Right on, like that. That was I knew it was better there. I told my parents. So when I was ten, I was still lamenting that I had been forced to be raised in Dallas, Texas, far from my grandmother. We had um and we were chasing fireflies and riding bikes and. Very, very suburban. So, Anderson, your uh, Twitter handle is the Outsider. Um, how'd you how'd you come to that? It was it was a, a kind of a immediate reaction when I just came into the Twitter world, so to speak. Uh, I, I just felt the kind of conversations that were going on, and I I, I wasn't part of it. Uh, the language, the uh, ideas that are being discussed. Uh, um, instantly, I was made to feel that I don't belong in that world of conversation because coming, uh, especially when I began, uh, the people that I uh, connected were mostly church people, theologians and uh, academics working in that area. And uh, that's when I changed uh, my name. Initially, I started off with Anderson Jeremiah, but then I, it was a reaction to what was going on uh, at that point in time, about uh, seven years ago. Uh, I, I wanted to capture that I, I, didn't, I didn't feel comfortable in that space because uh, what people are talking uh, doesn't include me, my experience, what I wanted to offer in terms of my own academic background. Um, and that's why I thought maybe you know I'll I'll, I'll just use that uh, as a as a as a name for my Twitter handle. And and when you say that about your your academic background, do you mean specifically Dalit theology or something else? It was particularly uh, um, Dalit theology and also theology in general because uh, this is the time when I was just beginning my academic career in Lancaster University, and there I was. Uh, I, I felt I've landed in this uh, academic position. What you offer in terms of theological input is not as good as, say, European theological contribution. So you need to constantly qualify that what I'm doing is a particular type of theology rather than just theology. So uh, that's where I felt that I needed to kind of uh, shake that up and say, well, if, if I talk about God, why should I have to qualify that? Why should I have to put a, a adjective in front just to uh, qualify what I'm saying? So if, you, if, a, if a, a, a white colleague 
is able to just speak freely and whatever that person says is an accepted systematic understanding of God, that's not the case for me. So that is, that's where, and of course, Dalit theology was critical in, in bringing up uh, that uh, view. I'm wondering, Anderson, um, in what ways has your um, experience and uh, production of Dalit theology, how has that uh, helpfully um, resourced your perspective of white European Anglo-American theologies that are out there, which is so yes, dominant and, and, and so normative? And this goes back to, I think, uh, uh, training in India, uh, particularly you know, in United Theological College, which is one of the kind of uh, uh, foremost ecumenical theological uh, college. But most of the time, what we were given in terms of theological education was uh, simply mimicking uh, European theological uh, foundations. So we studied a lot of Karl Barth, Paul Tillich and Bultmann and all these uh, canons of systematic theology. Uh, only later on, uh, uh, the critical Dalit theological interpretation began to ex be accepted. Uh, but we were very fortunate to have people like uh, Nirmal, um, Arvind P. Nirmal, who basically articulated the early form of Dalit theology, and uh, people like Satinadan Clark and uh, others who were beginning to articulate more in a sophisticated manner uh, we were the kind of first batch of students to have that kind of theological critique being taught to us. And of course, that was very instrumental in, uh, in, in uh, enabling my own thinking when I came to Edinburgh to New College uh, to do my uh, PhD. Very often, you know, as an Indian studying in a predominantly white Presbyterian theological college, it was so difficult that I needed to justify why I'm there. Uh, and of course, I was greatly supported by people like uh, Marcella Altos Reed. You know, she was uh, one of the pioneering uh, theologians um, on, on to talk about, um, you know, queerness. And she was my supervisor. So she drilled into me that you don't have to justify your place. You, you this is your voice. And you have all the right to talk about God the way that you want to talk. Marcella Althius Reed was your doctoral supervisor? Yes. That's, amazing. That's like a t-shirt to wear for the rest of your life. That's fantastic. Well, we, yeah, no, we, we, we didn't actually do much theology. We, we sat and drank and she is a phenomenal person who taught us how to do theology in the normal way. Yeah, my question about that is, um, so she, she writes on the body and desire, right? And what a, what a, and I assume this is how you chose your program, right? Mm. What a powerful connection um, to Dalit theology. And I wonder if it would be useful for our listeners to hear, you know, different kinds of liberation theolo theological mm. theology methods kind of privilege certain stories and, um, or highlight certain stories in the Bible or certain principles um, that are illustrated through their, um, through their experience. And I, I think it'd be great for people to hear where that um, what those things are for in Dalit theology and particularly from your from your work yeah yeah uh, no absolutely i think w the way that we began um marcella would take uh, some of her phd students to uh, rose street in edinburgh rose street is the kind of red light area um and she would take us and just 
to have conversation with these women who are in the most uh, 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 difficult situation in their life, um, but very happy to share about their experiences with us. And very often that's where she would ask us, where do you think God is in that particular context? What, what do these women think about God? And this is where you need to begin. And, uh, and very often this is something that I was able to immediately link with my own experience because uh, very often the very fact, you know, uh, I look the way I am, you know, I am dark skinned, uh, I have a stubby nose and all these are features of uh, a pariah, you know, someone who's untouchable. So my body defines who I am and who, where I belong in the social structure in, in the Indian context. So physicality is very central to our identity. Uh, and, uh, and this was the critical uh, connection that I made with other forms of liberation theology where your physical existence becomes the primary site of doing theology, uh, who we are and how we are shaped by the social realities around us. Um, and so I'll, I'll never forget uh, when Marcella told me that, you know, never forget who you are, physically who you are, because that's where you begin to think. Gosh, that's um, amazing to, um, to, to hear that. And so uh, the, the, the fact of, of what our bodies look like um, uh, is such, such a huge thing. Anderson, I remember... I'm thinking about social media, um, one of your tweets, which was um, um, the, the media had spoken about you as, as, as a young, up and coming um, uh, black voice in, in the church. And, uh, <laughs> and it'd be lovely to hear a little bit about that story and your response to it, because it seemed like a, another way of defining you. Yeah, this is um, uh, thanks for the question. I think this this happened uh, a couple of years ago. This is. Um, a, a, a kind of um, a report that came up after the Church of England General Synod met. And I was one of the uh, members in the General Synod. I, I represent the universities and theological educational institutions. Uh, so I had a, a question and a clarification to the Archbishop. And the way uh, it was reported in Church Times, uh, this very well-meaning reporter said, this question was asked by a, a black up-and-coming member of the General Synod. Uh, so I and I young as well, young. A, they said you were young. A, a, yeah, <laughs> a young <laughs> a black <laughs> member. It said, and I, I kind of, I uh, when I tweeted, I said, "Well, I'm, I'm really grateful that I'm recognized as a black. Thanks for the recognition, but I'm, I'm very sorry to say that I'm neither young nor." Uh, up and coming. I'm already in the General Synod and uh, I'm, I'm also an associate professor in the university. So I also have a particular identity that I, I come from Church of South India. And uh, I'm if my black brothers and sisters accept me as a black, I'm more than happy to be included. And of course, uh, it, it took uh, it, it took a lot of attention, <laughs> and uh, and they did uh, apologize since. What what I wanted to have this discussion was just how uh, how everybody is clubbed into this one big uh, lump and say, oh, all these people who talk about issues around uh, uh, equality and discrimination and things like that are all 
put in that one basket. If you are anywhere in that color palette, uh, you're all the same. And um, Anderson, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be curious to hear a little bit about um, uh, the work that you've done with the church. I know you're part of a task force that the Archbishops put together, uh, which produced a report which came out, I think, back in April uh, called Lament to Action. Do you have some hope for this? And, you know, who are we? You know, are we outsiders or insiders um, in this story? I think you have, you have touched upon something very, very critical here. Um, I think, to be very honest, I think we are still, uh, after, you know, three months of the publication and all the reactions, uh, I must be honest and say we, we still feel we are like the outsiders. Why? It's because it was not only uh, the lack of uh, will to do some of the very easy uh, recommendations, but also uh, significant pushback on many of the uh, key areas. But on the positive side, I think I'm very happy to say I think the major shift from the previous uh, recommendations and the Lament to Action report was that uh, the shift in focus from representation to participation. So what we wanted to push was that we are not asking for kind of uh, token representation, but we want to be uh, participants and agents of change with everyone else in that uh, table. So this is this is a very significant shift that we are here as equal partners. Uh, we are not asking for uh, any space. We already have the space. We want to be fully engaged in that process. Uh, and of course, in order to do that, uh, we need to have certain mechanisms whereby we can change the structures uh, within the Church of England, uh, which you have talked about in your own book. Uh, and this is why we wanted to bring in those fundamental representations uh, across the board so that we can, uh, we can change the way we function as a church. Um, but unfortunately, I think many of those critical recommendations that we suggested uh, which could have facilitated uh, a far more swift change is being uh, pushed back, is being resisted, because people do know that once you give in to those recommendations, then you need to follow it up with actual work, uh, which people don't want to commit to. And this is where I think uh, uh, right now, much of the hope is in the uh, uh, coming commission the Racial Justice Commission that is going to come and take place. Okay, thank you so much for sharing that, Anderson. You know, and I, um, uh, more power to you in that work because I don't want lament to action to become lament to auction, where the most, you know, the things that cost something are just sold off. Anderson, so to go back, I hear you about not needing to um, categorize our theologies, though I guess the other argument is that all category, all theology should be contextualized, is, is all contextualized. And so we have, you know, white Northern European theology, which really would speak for a very small part of the planet, right? Um, as the Christianity that we um, are told to embrace all over the world. Um, so one, I still want to go back to, I, I think there are some very particular and unique gifts of Dalit, Dalit theology um, to the theological project. But also you, you are doing work on Christologies um, and you're doing current work um, in the UK. And I'd, um, we'd love to hear, hear about that. Yeah, uh, um, it's, it's very important to keep in mind that, you know, uh, theology is uh, people 
speaking about God from their own uh, locations. Uh, what uh, we have come to realize is that this kind of European American white privileged theology is somehow universal. Uh, you know, once you produce, it can be applied in any context across the world. Whereas the theology that comes from, say, in Nigeria, theology that comes from uh, uh, Bolivia, or theology that comes from Madras, needed to be qualified, needed to be uh, contextualized. I think what Dalit theology has taught me is that, um, uh, as you very rightly said, all theologies are contextual, but we need to be aware of that. And we need to, uh, there is a space for all contextual theologies to be constructively engaged. Uh, because if we don't understand God in our own context, um, God cannot be uh, relevant because we are we are we are making god irrelevant by talking about a universal god who does not speak to us um so what i'm recently doing is that trying to uh, share just images of jesus christ um as as a prism through which we hear the stories of different communities for example uh, you know i've been i've been this is part of my wider research on global christianity so uh, I've kind of um, developed uh, this interest in collecting uh, crucifixes from different parts of the world, because very often it's in that crucifixes where uh, you, you see the uh, crucified Jesus, very often the stories of the community are portrayed. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things that uh, I was uh, talking about uh, is, is, is from uh, Japan, and uh, there's this whole community which is called the hidden Christians, you know, these, these Christians who hid their identities because uh, during the um, kind of authoritarian rule, they can't demonstrate that they are Christians uh, in the uh, common society. So they hid it literally underground, but very often they use the crucifixes to express the pain and the sorrow and the suffering uh, uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, who looks very distinctly Japanese. Or, for that matter, uh, when I spent a lot of time in Ghana, um, uh, especially in Cape Coast, where I was looking and uh, studying the impact of uh, the origins of slave trade from Cape Coast in the, in the Elmina Castle, many of the crucifixes that are made there in that area distinctly captures the slave uh, uh, experience how people lost their own identity. So what I'm trying to do now is to try and bring these narratives of Jesus Christ's experiences, which in many ways captures the experiences of the communities. In many ways, you know, this is like rewriting in my own uh, experience the the four different gospels, like how Mark, uh, uh, Matthew, John, and Luke they wrote their own experiences. I'm trying to capture the experiences of communities through the stories they tell about Jesus. So this is uh, something that I've, I've been able to uh, uh, kind of come to through Dalit theology, because uh, in my primary research, when I was studying Dalit communities in South India, very often, uh, particularly women uh, in, in these rural places, often describe Jesus in very strange and uh, uh, interesting ways. You know, one of the ways that uh, I still remember when I was doing fieldwork, 
I was accompanying this old lady uh, into the forest and she would say, oh, uh, Jesus came just now, helped me, took this big pile of wood and put it on in my head because I couldn't put it. So he came and helped me. And this is a very real experience. Uh, and there were there were other stories that uh, that I've, I've I've written in my uh, first book, where this personal experiences of Jesus very often, very much like the experiences of uh, you know uh, uh, women in the Old Testament, in like in Agar and others, where they were in distress, God came to rescue them, and you find that kind of texture in their stories, and I think. What I want to bring in in these conversations is that um, this kind of very human embodied understanding of Jesus Christ so that people can relate with rather than removed stained glass perceptions of Jesus. How can we fracture that kind of uh, uh, glorified understanding to a very incarnational understanding? And that's where um, I've been working on this kind of Christologies from the margins trying to give voice to those uh, 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 narratives of uh, community experience. It's brilliant to hear that. And I'm wondering, um, knowing all that you know, now being in a position of power, how do you make uh, the work that you do one which is true cultural appreciation and not cultural appropriation? As you gather the stories and these textures, um, you know, how, how does your lens, um, how are you part of the story as well? Um, that's, uh, that's the biggest challenge because how do you preserve the originality and authenticity of these voices? Um, and so the, the way that I'm capturing much of it is in, in the form of stories, in the form of uh, uh, people's own expressions. So. I'm, I'm trying to preserve as much as the originality of the voices rather than me interpreting them. Let's listen to all these different stories. How can we broaden our understanding of Jesus Christ? You know, um, there are about 36,000 different Christian denominations registered as part of church today in the world. You know, 2.2 uh, uh, billion Christians, but not all of them think of Jesus the same way. But that's not a, a wrong thing, but that's the best way God allowed God's self to be experienced. So it's, it's the challenge of preserving the originality, but also enabling us to creatively engage with our differences. What a rich and wonderful conversation we have been able to have today. Anderson, I thank you for coming and sharing. Winnie, thank you for introducing him. And Anderson, we're so glad that you survived the monkey um, onslaught um, all those many years ago and that you were here with us today on um, Go Race. So uh, thank you, Anderson. I, 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 I cannot forget those monkeys chasing me because that keeps me active even today. So, especially within Church of England. <laughs> Reach for the mango. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think you two are uh, exceptionally fantastic and hilarious. Thank you so much for uh, the, the way that you have, you're bringing out important issues uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it thank you 
That's brilliant. Well, thank you. It's been together we have had home, haven't we? We've had home together today. Thank you. Azariah Franz Williams and Winnie Varghese were talking to Anderson Jeremiah. Randolph Matthews composed the music. Grace was produced by me, Rosie Dawson. You can find more episodes from heartedge.org or from Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please subscribe, leave a review and share Grace with your friends.